Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about a pioneer when it comes to cinema, Spencer Williams. You may not know Spencer Williams, but he is the second most prolific African-American film director of the first half of the 20th century, uh, second only to Oscar Michaud. He has directed 10 features and three shorts. I mean, when you consider that he was working in the 30s and the 40s, yeah, that's very good. That's like a thousand features for any white person. So for that alone, being the second most prolific African-American filmmaker of his time, Spencer Williams is interesting and worthy of study. But he had a long life. He did many things. For many years, he was much better known for having played Andy on TV's Amos and Andy in the 1950s. But we're not going to talk about that for obvious reasons. Well, no. Uh, but I mean, it's worth addressing, I think. Uh, Amos and Andy, for those who don't know, was a very popular radio show. They probably existed in other media as well, uh, of two uh, goofy black characters. Specifically on the radio, they were played by two white guys who also appeared in blackface as those characters before the TV show started. But by the time CBS commissioned a TV series in the 1950s, blackface was, you know, pretty much on the way out. So they hired two actual black actors, one of whom was Oscar Michaud. And though Amos and Andy was popular on TV, it was still quite controversial. And it ended up being canceled around 1955, actually because of complaints from the NAACP. But it was like a massive hit, though. Like, it is a pop culture thing. Like, I know it. You know it. We haven't gone out of our way to watch episodes, and they are definitely not in syndication anywhere. And, you know, after 1955, that was basically the end of Spencer Williams' career. For a little while, he was one of the most famous black men in America. And after 1955, he was like, you know, Step and Fetch It or Mantan Moreland, you know, one of those guys who was in the dustbin of history. What's interesting about Spencer Williams is that he worked in Hollywood a lot before he got to direct his own films. While somebody like Oscar Michaud was there at the beginning making silent shorts and features, essentially completely independently, which is the only way that he could do it, Spencer Williams actually, I, I don't want to say worked his way up because he did have to go off on his own to make things, but he learned the trade and then was able to utilize those skills to move and start making features, specifically talkies, which was a big deal. Because like we mentioned on our Oscar Michaud episode, Talkies basically killed independent cinema. The technology became much more cumbersome. It was very difficult to pull things off in a way that didn't make them look incredibly cheap. And the whole distribution network, in most ways, collapsed around then. And, you know, what Oscar Michaud used to distribute and show all of his films, it just completely compressed. Yeah, and I mean, you look at Oscar Michaud's talkies, it's like Michaud and Spencer Williams, these are guys who rarely had more than $15,000 to make a movie. I think Spencer Williams' most famous film, The Blood of Jesus, cost $5,000. With that, and with non-professional actors, and with sound equipment, like, you can't even move the camera, basically. So, like I mentioned, that Spencer Williams did get started in Hollywood. He worked and acted as very bit parts in a lot of movies and shorts. For example, he does appear in Steamboat Bill Jr., 
the Buster Keaton picture. And he also appeared in stuff like The Public Enemy in very small roles. And throughout all of this, he actually worked principally in sound. And that's how he figured stuff out and was able to build his own system when he finally moved to making his own pictures. He had quite an interesting life. He was born in Louisiana in 1893. But as a teenager, he moved to New York. And when he was in New York, he became involved in the theater scene. Uh, He worked as a call boy for Oscar Hammerstein, believe it or not. Uh, His mentor was Burt Williams, a very popular vaudevillian of the time. Uh, He went to college, uh, which was unusual for an African-American man of the time, went to the University of Minnesota, served in the army in World War I. But after that, as you mentioned, he went to Hollywood and did a lot of bit parts. And he worked his way up the ladder to, in the late 1920s, he was working at a studio, Christie Studios, and he was working in the sound department there. But the head of the studio hired him to write uh, or be on the writing staff of some of these shorts. And he also acted in the shorts that they were making. All black cast shorts. I think the Christie Studios mostly made uh, comedies with all black cast for white audiences. So, you know, a lot of stereotypical humor. Um, But, you know, Spencer Williams plied his trade there. It should be pointed out that You know, most all black cast films were for just black audiences, which is why the stuff that Oscar Michaud and Spencer Williams made had much smaller budgets because they were being pitched to technically a much smaller audience because there weren't that many theaters that could show this kind of stuff. And even then, most all black cast movies were done by white people like Edgar G. Ulmer uh, after his Black Cat fiasco made an all black cast movie. A lot of people on Poverty Road did that because that was somewhere you could go. And if you had the technical skills, they were looking for people that could do that and would be willing to work within that system, which was obviously looked down upon by, you know, racist everybody. Well, in the 1940s, pretty much the only guy who was underwriting the whole industry of all black cast movies was Alfred N. Sack, who was a white Jewish entrepreneur. He owned a number of black theaters in the South. He also employed Oscar Michaud on uh, most of Oscar Michaud's later films. Michaud was originally an independent. Uh, you know, Michaud was fascinating because he was able to self-finance and self-distribute his own films. That, of course, ended with the sound era. But uh, Spencer Williams made, I think, just about all of or most of his feature films for Alfred Sack. I watched um, one of the films that Spencer Williams acted in uh, for Sack the amazingly called Bronze Buckaroo, which was part of a series of all-black cast cowboy movies. And these films that starred Herbert Jeffries are pretty much on the same level as most Poverty Row westerns. We've mentioned this before, but like Poverty Row was a western factory. They just pumped these out like there was no tomorrow because that's what kids love to watch. And this one, Bronze Buckaroo, which was directed by Richard C. Kahn, who I believe was a black director. I couldn't find that much information about him. But his film is included on the uh, Kino Pioneers of African-American Cinema box set. So I think he probably is. But like the film is much slicker than most of Spencer Williams or Oscar Michaud's film at this time. And it's basically on the base level of pictures that were directed by people like Sam Newfield, who actually directed the first film in the series of all black cast uh, Herbert Jeffrey uh, Westerns. Yeah, Herbert Jeffrey was a mixed race, I guess, singer. 
And in these films, he played a singing cowboy, kind of a Gene Autry type. You know, I quite like these movies because they're full of like black character actors from the time, like Stymie from The Little Rascals and Mantan Moreland. Spencer Williams, of course, is in a lot of them. A number of other actors whose names are less familiar. And they are like they are like Hollywood Westerns, and it feels like a bizarro world version of a Hollywood Western. It feels like all of the uh, people who would have played like porters and servants and maids like took control of the means of production and made these films. And they're just as good. It's like, yeah, there should have been more of these. I read an interview with Ozzie Davis once, and you know, Ozzie Davis in the 70s was another uh, pioneer, another prolific and successful director. And Ozzie Davis mentioned that he loved these Herb Jeffries westerns growing up because it's like, you know, we like we weren't fools. We knew they were technically shoddy. You know, we knew they weren't perfect, but like they were ours. Well, compared to the films that Spencer Williams and Michaud were making during this time, these were like solid gold Spielbergian um, dramas. There's like dolly shots. Everything is pretty well lit. But then when you come to Williams' probably most famous film, Blood of Jesus, this is when you get stuff that looks like a silent film, uh, like a real bottom of the rung one, but happens to have sound as well. Yeah, it does feel like a silent film, doesn't it? And not just the technical quality of it, but also just the fact that well the way it like skirts on the edge of camp and and the fact that it just goes for like big grand gestures and emotions and the fact that it kind of has no nuance in it so i'm interested about blood of jesus and i couldn't find this information is that it is a religious film and that's basically the um world that Spencer Williams worked in when he was directing his own stuff. And was that an extension of himself or is it just a business proposition because churches were a guaranteed place where these films could play? So if you play to that audience, like somebody like the Ormans did, then you knew you would have a guaranteed buying public. You know, I tried to find that out too, and I couldn't find the information. I mean, Perhaps Spencer Williams was a deeply religious man. Perhaps he wasn't. I don't know. But I mean, what matters is that this movie was very successful. It played in, you know, Southern church basements for years. And it's like, it feels like a community effort. Like it feels like an outgrowth, you know, I mean, whether or not Williams himself was personally devout, like it, it's a product of a time and a place and a, a certain kind of religious culture that existed in that time and place. And what's great about the movie and the reason that it would play as much as it did is that it offers the uh, threat of damnation, but also all the fun that damnation would include. You can see it up all on screen. It's a story of a young woman who is accidentally shot when her husband drops his gun and she hangs in the afterlife, having to make a decision that she go hang out with all the cool, fun-loving people down by the jazz bar or she go with all those boring angels in the other direction. Now, I was slightly confused by this plot because, well, okay, I wasn't confused at all, but I'm just gonna, like, poke a hole here. <laughs> like, in the early scenes, like, it opens in this small community in the South where there's a church group who's holding a baptismal, and one of the people who gets baptized is this woman. But her husband, played by Spencer Williams, he's not interested in religion. He uh, wants to go off and, I don't know, booze or whatever he does. Yeah, and he's capturing piglets that don't belong to him, even though he makes the point that if he didn't, they would have probably starved. Why is it that after he accidentally shoots her, it's her soul that hangs in the balance? Like That's a little weird because 
like, she makes clear that she is on the right path. She believes in Jesus and all of this stuff. So shouldn't she make this choice very easily? Or is everybody offered this choice at the end of their life? And it's so alluring that even people that have followed the right way through all their waking moments may be tempted to go do some of that fun dancing. It's a little bit Last Temptation of Christ, isn't it? A hundred percent. And so this movie, you follow this woman as she wanders through essentially this afterlife that is mostly composed any fantastical sequences from the classic Italian film Inferno, which wouldn't be the last time that Williams would use this footage. Oh, yeah. So Inferno came out in 1911. This movie came out in 1944. Uh, Inferno looks incomparably slicker than this film does. Uh, I mean, that's just a statement of fact. I'm not making fun of the movie. It's just like... When you see Williams juxtaposing that that Inferno footage, which is so spectacular and surreal and strange with his own footage, which is, you know, very prosaic, very basic, like it makes your head spin a little bit. He does it again in his later movie, Go Down Death, which also features a man like on his knees, basically at the gates of hell and seeing like all this surreal imagery of like you know, lakes full of full of people burning and, you know, the devil eating people, you know. All this fantastical stuff that if you didn't know it was from another movie, you'd be like, wow, he really pulled out all the stuff for this stuff. I mean, in Blood of Jesus, there's still some real powerful stuff that he shot himself, whether it be an angel appearing and offering a choice, the kind of Dreyer-like starkness. I'm talking about Carl Theodore Dreyer of some of the scenes set in the house, which are like big wides and the people just living in this moment and all of it together actually is pretty moving when you see it play out it also has a guy in a like dollar store devil costume which (laughs) you know any movie that offers that i'm on its side and also some confusing like wait are they in the real world how does everybody work here like there's a club you can go to that people are hanging out at and in this devil world money still has value so you can still be robbed i think these are all you know nitpicking because it's about the feeling and the emotion i like that point you made earlier about how the like the juke joint looks so much more fun than the church because like a lot of spencer williams movies are set at like juke joint settings uh he seems to have been like very you know very attracted to that setting like there's always a dichotomy in his films between like the sacred and the profane um but but I don't know. I think I know what side he really likes better. Well, it's like most religious productions is that they're offering you the thing that is, you know, evil because they know the people watching want to experience that thing. And even if they do it at a distance and go, oh, this is bad, they are still gathering enjoyment from all of this. It's fun to watch these like juke joints and all of these people have tons of fun without any worries in the world. As opposed to the angels who are shown at one point just wandering sadly through the graveyard. Nobody wants to be that. Oh, and also like a lot of the all black films of the time, this one is or or, or Michaud's films in general are kind of padded with musical performances or vaudeville performances by just kind of like journeyman performers of the day. So like Spencer Williams films also just have the value of like preserving things that wouldn't have otherwise been preserved on film, whether it's the locations or the people or the entertainers. Like, you know, he was working with a lot of non-actors who like... Like they didn't have any other chances to appear on film. 70, 80 years later, this is the mark they left on the world. You can argue the dramatic successfulness of these movies 
But you have to remember that, like, they weren't meant to continue living on after the couple of years they would have played in theaters. That was it for them. And the fact that they were frozen in time like this gives them so much value because nothing like it exists anywhere else. And, you know, it it is that about The Blood of Jesus, because, like, it's insane that this movie came out the same year as, like, Citizen Kane and The Maltese Falcon. Some of the other Spencer Williams films feel like heavily influenced by Hollywood. We we both watched Dirty Gertie from Harlem, USA, and that feels like a movie like Safe in Hell, like a pre-code Warner Brothers movie. But but Blood of Jesus feels like it emerged from an entirely different culture. You know, how often do you see a black Southern conservative religious movie now even? But but here it is, and it seems to be following its own rules of grammar. And the actors, you know, they're not they're not <laughs> They're not trained in any formal method. They're doing their own thing. It's just like, it's folk art, you know? Tyler Perry made a whole industry off of it. And he is the black Southern filmmaker conservative that's doing his thing. You're right. How could I forget? And you just mentioned Dirty Gertie. And that's probably, out of all the ones I watch, one of his slickest films, where he seemed to have the resources or enough of them to be able to pull it off. And it's also helped that it was restored. So it looks great if you watch it now, as opposed to all the public domain dupe copies of it that came out. Yeah, Dirty Gertie from Harlem, USA from 1946 is, it's pretty fun. You know, it's about this uh, Harlem nightclub singer played by an actress named Francine Everett, who appeared in a number of race movies of the time. She was also in a Joseph L. Mankiewicz movie called No Way Out from 1950, although um, I don't think she had a particularly big role in it. Uh, she's amazing in it, honestly. And and Oh, she's great. Yeah, and, and she's got like just an incredible face. Like she's got a face with cheekbones that can cut class and a uh, very charismatic uh anyway she's this harlem nightclub singer who goes to this caribbean island to headline at the nightclub there and she brings with her a certain reputation you know she's a she's a bit of a man eater and all the men on the island are kind of uh, tripping over themselves trying to Uh, get a moment with her and you know she's kind of sashay in her hips and all that and there's also uh, two very conservative bible thumping men on the island who really don't like her um they they're kind of the villains of the piece i would say Mm -hmm. i mean the film does end punishing her for all the sins that she committed but she's so charismatic in the movie that you don't even want that to happen like it's not like a aha she got her just desserts like oh man this is how it had to end yeah yeah I watched a couple of other Spencer Williams films, too. Um, I watched his earliest surviving directorial credit called Hot Biscuits, which is a 10-minute short film from 1931. This movie was actually not even known to exist until a couple years ago because it was, like, misfiled at the Library of Congress, I think. Uh, It was included in the Pioneer's box set. And it's, like, just a really, like, silly, like, Laurel and Hardy-type comedy about a, a guy who, like, he's the puppet owner of a mini putt course basically the mini putt course is owned by a corrupt cop and he says well i could i could beat anyone at mini putt and then somebody comes up to him and says well i'll challenge you to mini putt and then spencer williams plays a guy who's like hey i can help you cheat at the mini putt game by like with with like magnets and electronics but of course 
when the mini fight game is happening, Spencer Williams gets uh, distracted by a lady and, you know, shenanigans ensue. I mean, like that kind of stuff makes you wonder what else Spencer Williams had in him, because his last few films were all religious based. And you get the sense because that was the market that he knew he could sell this stuff to. Like after The Blood of Jesus, he made a movie called Marching On in 1943 that was about World War Two and reflected his own experiences in the in the First World War, where he actually went up to the um, rank of Sergeant Major, but that film flopped. And then he went back to, okay, let's go back to Sin and Salvation Pictures. And that's basically what he made until, you know, he stopped being a filmmaker, because that's all he could make. That's all the audience wanted in some ways. He did... I think for his last two movies, do these two comedies where it starred him and another comedian named July Jones. One of them was called Juke Joint, which I watched this week. You know, it's a, it's a pretty short film. It's also a very Laurel and Hardy type thing where July Jones and Spencer Williams are con men who talk their way into this like kindly old woman's boarding house telling telling her, oh, we're thespians from Hollywood. And they have to end up being roped into having to train her daughter to take part in a beauty pageant. Uh, Juke Joint's a very cheap movie. Like, there's there's a scene where a woman is talking on the phone, and you hear the voice at the other end of the line, but it's just a guy who is talking from the other end of the room. And like, at that point, it's like, well, why even have him talk from the other end of the room? You really get the feeling that, like, the sound era and the studios really coming up and grabbing the reins just squished all the independents, especially the ones that were black, because they had nowhere to play anymore. Like, back in the early days of cinema, it's a it's the Wild West. Anybody can do stuff. But by, like, the 1950s, there's a reason that Michaud and Williams' films were as poverty-stricken as they were, is that they just didn't have any of the resources or exhibition places to put their work out into the world. And then by the 50s, television had come in. Race movies basically end in 1950, and then there's a 20-year period until Cotton comes to Harlem and Sweet Sweet Back, you know? I mean... It takes that long for another black filmmaker to be able to make his own film. I mean, possibly there was other stuff in between there. I'm sure people are doing research on that mm-hmm. now, but... I'm sure we're missing stuff, but like most commonly known, like even just a black filmmaker working for a studio, like the main one was Gordon Parks. He's the first person to do it. Yeah, in uh, 1969, uh, I think. If people are interested in checking out Spencer Williams, the pioneers of African-American cinema is just an incredible box set. Kino has put it out. Many films by Michaud, Spencer Williams, and other like one-shot filmmakers, filmmakers who uh, didn't even have the careers they had. And also, a lot of these films are available on streaming platforms now. Criterion has them. Canopy has some of them. So I'm interested in Spencer Williams' last credit, which, according to IMDb, is in The Horrible Dr. Hickok, which you may know as the Ricardo Freda Mario Bava film. <laughs> and I just want to know, like, what was he doing in that film? Is he in it? Like, I saw it on Wikipedia. It said he plays a hospital orderly. It's his last credited role. But he's not on IMDb, I believe, which makes it sound like a walk-on. What was he doing in Italy? How did he show up in that movie? I have so many questions. Did Mario Bava know him? Was Mario Bava an Amos and Andy fan? Because as a filmmaker, Spencer Williams 
passed away before anybody recognizing the importance of the work he did. His films were actually believed to be lost until they were discovered in a barn in Texas in 1983. That's how long it took for those films to be rediscovered. So lots to explore with Spencer Williams. Definitely a subject for further research. Uh, Until then, though, Justin... Do we have any letters? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Bennett Glace. He goes, So, my question will probably only apply to Will, but I love Justin to prove me wrong. Do you remember any of the post-Ebert, post-Roper iteration of Roger Ebert's television series? There was a version with Ben Mankiewicz, host of TMC's podcast, and Ben Lyons, who called I Am Legend one of the greatest films of all time. And there was also a version, I can't remember which came first, with Christy Lemire and Ignati... Vishnevetsky, handpicked by Ebert. I watched every episode of both shows on my family's desktop. No, I still can't remember which came first. Sue me. Yes, I am am very aware of both iterations of the show. You see, what happened was after Ebert got sick and then Roper continued with guest hosts for a while, Disney decided to push Roper out uh, and replace them with, yes, Ben Lyons and Ben Mankiewicz and have it be kind of more of a dude's rock show. And, you know, Ben Lyons was probably a little bit in over his head, I think. I, I never actually saw the Ben Lyons incarnation of the show, but that only lasted for a year. And it was a pretty conspicuous disaster. But yeah, after Ben Lyons and Ben Mankiewicz, there was also one year of A.O. Scott and Michael Phillips. I never watched any of this stuff. I've been no, on record that not. I never watched Ebert, never watched Roper, even though I knew Roper had come on and I knew he was a big dweeb just seeing him on TV being like, I don't care about his opinions, even though I do subscribe to his app. With all of his new reviews and updates, which I'm not joking, this is a thing that actually exists. Well, yeah, I have the Roper app, by the way. Roper you was do? great. <laughs> Roper was great in the early days because, like, he he really like didn't know anything about like anything that wasn't Hollywood. <sighs> I, and I'm I'm just saying that like as a fact that okay, no, I am judging him. I shouldn't Wait, say who that. Picked Roper. You, I'm sure you know. I think how- Ebert picked Roper. They both worked at the Chicago Sun-Times. Probably because Ebert was it was like, I want some like limp noodle that I can just slap around throughout my show and have no competition. Basically, I think so. The fiery disagreements were that, that he had with Cisco were gone. Mm. Roper's like, yeah, whatever you say, boss. I don't want to get fired or anything. <laughs> yeah. So do you remember when the show died? Well, after the Michael Phillips, A.O. Scott era, it was it was off TV for a while. But then ebert self-financed a pbs revival that had christy lemire and ignati vishnevetsky on it and that only lasted a year because like basically nobody would finance another season but uh ebert had registered trademarked the thumbs so like in the ben lyons ben mankiewicz version it was see it or skip it (laughs) but then in the christy lemire vishnevetsky version it was thumbs up thumbs down again i wonder if the ebert company still has trademark on the thumbs because like i think people associate thumbs up much more with facebook than they do with siskel and ebert i wonder like would the ebert estate come after anybody who made a show that was like thumbs up or thumbs down do you want to try me and will (laughs) we are available to host public access um whatever ebert and roper do we need to dress as them we'll do it it's fine and i mean we are universally regarded as the siskel and ebert of the new millennium so we already know who the ebert and the siskel are i think there's no contest that i'm the roper because i'm like real good looking and i'm an alpha (laughs) yeah that's right 
I remember you sending me a photo from that app of like Roper like in boxing gloves with no shirt on because he was <laughs> doing like a review of I don't know what. I mean, the real question is, what's Gene Shalit up to these days? Is he still alive? I think it would have made all of the news wires if he passed away. You're right. I I would have known if he died. I mean, we've talked about this before, but there was a time where Gene Shalit was the caricature of a movie critic. Because he was like a universal monster that you could like draw a shadow and you knew who it was. Even in The Devil's Rejects, the Rob Zombie film, the film critic character in that basically is a dead ringer for Gene Shalit. <laughs> Insanity. So, uh, thank you very much for that letter. And our next letter is from Andy Bolsover. He goes, Hey guys, I have a bad habit of buying up nearly every Blu-ray release of a Hong Kong action movie that comes out. There have been so few, so with the likes of Eureka and 88 Films finally putting in good work, I feel like I have to buy them all to support them. Do you have any kinds of films you will buy just to support the industry genre? And why do you think that Hong Kong action has been so poorly represented when so many labels are putting out similarly niche Eurotrash horror movies and MST3K type fodder with wonderfully painted slipcovers? Thanks for all the hours of entertainment. I still eagerly await your episode on Michael Wong. Andy. Should we do a Michael Wong episode? <laughs> we could easily do a Michael Wong episode. The one guy that when you see him in Hong Kong movies, you're like, oh, I recognize him. And he's so popular that he even shows up in stuff like Transformers, uh, the one they shot in China. I was like, oh my God, is that Michael Wong's? I'm seeing it in IMAX. But, but you know, I have bought a lot of those uh, Hong Kong movies from Eureka and 88 Films and other companies. 88 Films in particular has put out like all the Jackie Chan movies. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them. And so like I have like even the bad Jackie Chan movie. I mean, maybe I just have like too much money. Dragon Fist. I know you own that bad boy. Dragon Fist, I own. <laughs> to Kill with Intrigue was another one they put out. I own To Kill with Intrigue, yes. So, I mean, I don't have any data in front of me of why Hong Kong cinema hasn't been very well represented on, you know, physical media, especially boutique special editions. But I think one of the reasons is that action, even Hong Kong action, does not have the same cult as horror films. Like, I talk about this a lot in my Albert Pyun book, is that, like, Albert Pyun doesn't really have that many, like, rabid fans in the same way that, like, a trash horror auteur does, because, you know, horror has its own conventions. It has its own cult and groups. Action does as well, but minuscule compared to horror stuff. And I think there's many reasons for that. Uh, a lot of them that I get into the commentary was Alex Chung on the recent release of Holy Virgin versus the Evil Dead. But it comes down to basically good action needs to be very specific. That like you react to it. Good horror can be super cheap and badly done and it will still have that raw element that a fan of the genre will be like, ooh, I like that. To the listener's question of do we ever buy something basically to support it? Like, as charity. Oh, we do that all the time. Me and Will will say that to each other. Like, if we're not buying it, who will? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, a, a case in point of that is, like, certain of the Vinegar Syndrome releases, like, the, the adult films they've released. Like, if they come out with a, you know, spectacular special edition of Roberta Findley's Mascara, mm -hmm. it's like, okay, well... I mean, it's it's heroic that they're doing this, so I'd better buy Wait, it. Wait, the Roberta Finley direct mascara? Or was that like a Henri Pichard joint that Roberta Finley was a cinematographer on? Justin, I can't slip anything past you, can I? <laughs> yeah, you know what? 
I would not be an expert in this if Figure Syndrome wasn't putting it out. And I'm like, I guess I gotta get this because, you know, this is the kind of stuff I want to support. Like, Fist of Fear, Touch of Death, man. I bought it, even though I'm on it. Because I'm like, wow, <laughs> listen, I hope they sell a few copies of this, even though I'm seeing no monetary return from it. Another one was Let My Puppets Come. Oh, I own that as well. <laughs> It's like, I am so happy Vinegar Syndrome put that out. And like, I don't even particularly enjoy Let My Puppets Come. Mm -hmm. It's a one joke movie. But if they do that, I will support it. I mean, like with the Hong Kong action stuff, I mean, the UK Hong Kong legends, they put a lot of stuff out and they treated it with a lot of respect. But I think that one of the other reasons it hasn't come out that much is that maybe the studios just aren't interested. They don't think there's an audience for it. Like, again, like Japanese stuff has its own cult niche. There's way more Japanese cult stuff, even action films that have special edition DVD releases and Blu-rays compared to Hong Kong cinema stuff. Did you ever read that article that was going around a couple years ago about when Celestial put out all the Shaw Brothers movies in the mid 2000s? Like they bought and released basically the entire Shaw Brothers library, hundreds of films. And there was this article that was sort of viral that basically credited that with like cratering the martial arts film home video market. There was just wow, like really? too, too much stuff on the market. I'll see if I can find that and send it to you. I think the weird thing about that is like those movies were never available. Like the Shaw Brothers had no interest in any kind of English or even local distribution. Like in the 90s, to see a Shaw Brothers movie, you would have to see like a really shitty VHS tape because they didn't really do any official uh, releases unless they were American dub versions, which is why something like 36 Chambers of Shaolin is so well-loved because it was very easily accessible, while a lot of stuff like the Wuxia pictures weren't. And then when they came out and they released them all in one bunch, they even did it in a really weird way. In the uh, first wave of releases, there's a bunch of commentary tracks on the official uh, Celestial releases. And the people that did them, uh, I read an interview with them that they said that, like, we hadn't even seen the movie because it had never been available and they wouldn't even show it to us. We just had to go in and kind of riff about a movie we had never seen before. And I know this because that's the commentary for the Anonymous Heroes, which is a film that the commentary people admit freely that, like, oh, we can comment generally, but we've actually never seen this picture before. It's just like distributors don't really know what to do with it. And the big wave that we've seen recently from companies like Eureka and 88 Films is 100% tied, and we've talked about this before, to Criterion putting out Police Story 1 and 2. Suddenly the whole world went, oh wow, these things are actually respectful? Like, there's art there? Like, many people believe that, but it wasn't until Criterion kind of cemented it for people that everybody else jumped on. And don't you feel just a little bit resentful about that, you know? Oh, I did. Guys like, (laughs) okay, so first of all, that's a very petty thing for me to say because it's great that many people are discovering and and loving Police Story. I mean, finally, we have a extended edition of Operation Condor, a movie that was already way too long. (laughs) I'm just saying, I was there on the front lines going to Chinatown, getting my bootleg copy of police story between before all you Johnny come lately's got at it. Well, I remember everybody was like, oh man, police story. It's remastered. It's going out. And I'm like, it's been on Blu-ray for like seven years. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's been very easily accessible all this time. But you know what? I'm glad that it's finally put in a pantheon that is like very well known because then you can get a super duper special edition of films like Heart of the Dragon and Miracles. Like there is no bottom of the barrel that these companies won't scratch. When are they going to do 
a special Blu-ray edition of Fantasy Mission Force. And if they are, we need to be involved in some way. <laughs> I agree. By the way, you mentioned that you mentioned Heart of the Dragon. I got the 88 films edition of Heart of the Dragon. Of course I did. The extras on it are incredible. There's like an hour long behind the scenes documentary, just raw footage from the set. It's like being there. And Heart of the Dragon was also a famous one that it was Samuel Hung and Jackie's attempt to do a drama. And they shot a whole bunch of action scenes that featured like top tier stuntmen that only appeared in like the Japanese versions and like really crummy VHS copies. And they're all included on this disc. Like, you know, as much as we say like, oh, they finally jumped on the opportunity to put these movies out. They're also treating them with tons of respect and making the best special edition that they ever could. What I'm trying to say is, Eureka, 88 Films, please send us your movies for free. We will review them on this show. Yes, please. (laughs) All right. So thank you very much for that letter. We always love to talk about Hong Kong cinema. And again, if you have any questions, comments, you can send it to us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, we are doing a special episode. It's a listener's choice. We talk about David Lynch's rabbits and not just rabbits but we're going to be talking about some of the work that david lynch did between mulholland drive and twin peaks the return the what i will call the david lynch.com era mm-hmm. so we watch dumbland we talk about a bunch of his shorts and we finally answer the question is david lynch a grifter of some sort well you gotta listen at patreon.com slash the important cinema club to find out five dollars a month you get our whole back catalog so what are we doing next week, Will? Next week, we are not talking about Wes Anderson. Well, we kind of are. We're talking about Wes Anderson's exploitation. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We are looking at a director that you all like. Mm-hmm. Don't don't kid yourself, folks. If you're listening to this podcast or any film podcast, you probably like Wes Anderson. And if you don't like him, you did like him. And then you changed your mind <laughs> because you're like, That's right. Ugh, I don't want to like what everybody else likes. So we are looking at a couple of films that are heavily, heavily indebted to the master, including Nacho Libre, the Jared Hess film Ugh. starring Jack Black. I sat stone faced throughout the entire uh, theatrical screening of that film. But you know what? I feel like today I will come back a little warmer to it. I was tempted to pick Napoleon Dynamite because that one is kind of very Wes Anderson as well, but not as much as Nacho Libre, which is from the same director. But are you looking forward to the other one we're watching, which is Roman Coppola's A Glimpse Inside the Mind of Charles Swan III, starring Charlie Sheen. A movie that I feel like I've seen and completely erased from my mind. I'm excited to jump back in, though. I love the Sheenster. Uh, I love Roman Coppola's work in his father's Dracula movie. That's all the special effects stuff. That stuff is great. You know what? I'm even going to watch CQ as well. Whoa. Okay. And you know, uh, I think we're also going to watch the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. We got to talk about uh, Wes Anderson a little bit, you know. So until next week, as Roger Ebert said, the balcony is closed. Hello, this is Justin interrupting briefly to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers who include Jeff Chanley, James Renforce Frederick, No Chase Hebrew, RJL, Luke Corey Way, Krister, Mike Daly, and Jack Book. Thank you very much for becoming subscribers. We could not keep doing this without you. And if you haven't given us a review on Apple Podcast, please do so. It helps people find the show. It makes me and Will feel a little bit better. And it's completely free and anybody can do it. 
Also, if you're on the social medias, you can follow me on Twitter at DeCluj, D-E-C-L-O-U-X, the letter J, or on Letterboxd, it's just Justin DeClue, same spelling. Or you can follow Will on Twitter at Will Sloan, E-S-Q, or on Letterboxd by just searching Will Sloan. We're also on Facebook. You just have to search The Important Cinema Club, and there's a group where I post updates of anything that's coming up that's related to this podcast. And without further ado, we now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Will, the filmmaker behind your favorite Batman movie has passed away. Joel Schumacher, at the age of 80, sat... At the age of 80, after sleeping with 20,000 people. <laughs> you know, it's it's so funny. I was looking at Twitter today and, like, seeing the tributes roll in. And basically all the tributes are like, wow, Joel Schumacher, you know, um, he was he was kind of a hack. Uh, he made a lot of bad movies, but he made some fun bad movies and he fucked 20,000 people. So <laughs> <Yeah>. salute. <laughs> salute to a legend. I love how that fact, like... Like, just at the 11th hour, he got in there and dropped that fact on the world. Oh, man, right <laughs> under the wire, didn't he? Like, he did that interview a few years ago, and it's like, no one will ever be able to mention me again from this point without dropping this fact into it. And that's a great interview, too. It's like, every now and then, one of those people who are 80 years old gives one of those interviews where they have no more fucks left to give. So, uh, do you have any affection for the cinema of Sh- Joel Schumacher? You know what? I do. Even though I appreciate his drive more than I appreciate the actual end results. Like, a lot of his movies I want to like, but then I sit and watch and I'm like, ah, man, this ain't doing nothing for me. Like, I watched 8mm a little while ago, and it was a great uh, imitation of Seven in that classic Joel Schumacher way. 8mm is one of his better ones. It's kind of trashy fun, you know? Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't make any great claims for it. He had such a career considering that, like, he was the costume designer on Woody Allen's Sleeper. Yeah, right. He he did costume design on a lot of stuff, actually. But when you look at his filmography, you're like, oh, man, like, a lot of these were real duds. Like, even something famous like Flatliners. I remember watching it recently and being like, oh, boy, this ain't doing nothing for me. Or... Phone Booth, which I really want to like. Larry Cohen's script, high concept, but man, Joel Schumacher's style just cuts any tension right out of it. That's the thing. It's hard to pay tribute to Joel Schumacher because even Phone Booth, it's like, would have been a lot better if somebody else... How, how do you fuck that up? Like it's, you shouldn't be able to fuck that up. Yeah, great, great Larry Cohen script. Totally undone by its director. I will say he's made some fun, bad movies. Um, so mm-hmm. like the number 23. I've never seen the number 23, actually. It's got some good laughs. Uh, Trespass has some good laughs in it. And I mean... What can you say? Batman Forever, Batman and Robin. These are iconic films. These are oh, yeah. era-defining films. I mean, I find them dull as dishwater, even though everything on screen, I'm like, I should be liking this. Why don't I like this? I watched Batman and Robin not that long ago with a friend. And like, mm-hmm. we sat down and we're like, okay, this is going to be really fun. But there comes a point around the 40-minute mark of Batman and Robin where it's like, this may be unreclaimable. Like it's a like it's mm-hmm. an amazing thing. You've got a gay director who does a really yeah. gay take on Batman. Oh, and if you listen to his commentary, he's like, "Oh yeah, um, Uma Thurman uh, appearing in a gorilla suit is my homage to Marlene Dietrich in the Joseph von Sternberg film, A Blonde Venus." Blonde <laughs> Venus. There you go. Yeah, and all that sounds great. 
And then you mm-hmm. sit there and watch this movie. And it's like, well, this this is like at its heart, like a very cynical hack movie. Like Joel Schumacher doesn't care about Batman. Oh, no, he definitely doesn't. But I think he cares a lot about the movies that he made, which is why it's frustrating that they didn't work so well. I mean, The Lost Boys is probably one of his most perfect films because it's so representative of the time that it was made in, like the 80s. That is The Lost Boys from end to end. But then you look at like Falling Down. Oh boy, that film has not held up. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. it's <laughs> the point that it's trying to make. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit uh, retrograde. But at the time, that's what everybody was like. Yeah, finally, someone speaking for the common man. Maybe we should watch Phantom of the Opera. Because I feel like because it's supposed to be bad. But I also think like... Well, if there's one thing that maybe he could do well, it's Phantom of the Opera. It's famously bad. The Andrew Lloyd Webber musical is shit, too. So it's like... Oh, yeah. It has. It only has one song. That's it. Phantom of the Opera is there yeah. inside your Fan- heart. The Andrew Lloyd Webber musical is incredibly long, you know, very, very thin stuff. Um, and I sort of, I think, you know, maybe if I watch that, it's like, I'll just enjoy Joel Schumacher's costume sense. I do like the bit of trivia that he started to write only for African-American cinema in the mid-70s because he did Car Wash and The Wiz and DC Cab. He was like the go-to guy, this gay white dude. (laughs) Incredible. So, I mean, it's an amazing career. It's a career that like worked with so many people, so many genres, many films that were popular and iconic. I'm glad we could dig him up just to bury him again. (laughs) And he fucked 20,000 people. Salute. 